people of God, let us open our copies of God's Word to Matthew's Gospel once again. You will recall that last week we were in Matthew 27, looking at the crucifixion of our Lord. We turn back to chapter 27, and we begin reading at verse 62, all the way through chapter 28. Let us now bow before the Lord. Almighty God and our Father in heaven, we praise thy name that we have not been left to ourselves, to our sin and depravity, but that Christ Jesus came into this world and that he bore our sins upon the tree in his own body and that he was raised on the third day. He lives and he saves. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that even now our minds and hearts may be directed by the Holy Spirit to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that we may give praise to Thy name that our own resurrection is bound up with His resurrection, for He is the firstfruits of those that sleep. Lord, may also that resurrection of hearts spiritual resurrection take place as the power of the Holy Spirit applies the Word, regenerates and converts, as well as filling us with praise for the resurrection bodily that waits us, awaits us when Christ comes again. And we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand, chapter 27 of Matthew's Gospel, beginning at verse... 62. This is the word of the Lord. Next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by the sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. 
And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the tomb is an historical fact. We are not saying that he only rose in spirit. We are not saying that he only rises in the proclamation of the church. We are saying, because the New Testament teaches, the same body laid in the tomb was raised from the tomb. Jesus possesses a glorified body, but the same body was glorified. Physical, real, tangible. And Jesus staked all of his claims on his resurrection from the dead. There is no Christianity without belief in this fundamental that should drive all of our thinking, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And of this we have a magnificent account here in Matthew's Gospel. As we come to this account, the first thing we need to recall is the tomb tightly sealed the tomb tightly sealed. Joseph of Arimathea placed Jesus in the tomb that had been prepared for the eventuality of his own death. And I remember the sort of tomb that is presupposed in Matthew and the other Gospels is an expensive tomb with an antechamber leading to the burial chamber sealed with a cut disc-shaped stone that would slide in place at an angle. This would have been the typical tomb of a wealthy individual. And you will recall how in John's gospel that John peers in through the antechamber before entering into the tomb where the body had been placed. It would have been really hard to open. The tomb also was guarded The chief priests and Pharisees approached Pilate, afraid of the fraudulent claim to resurrection. They were afraid that the disciples would take the body and claim that Jesus rose from the dead. 
They needn't have feared this because the disciples at this point were completely depressed and dejected, and they have no category for a crucified and risen Messiah. D.A. Carson says rightly, from their viewpoint, the Jewish leaders are protecting themselves and the people from deception. From Matthew's perspective, they are deceiving themselves. Verse 65 could be translated in one of two ways. The translation could be the imperative, take a guard, in which case Roman soldiers are placed there, or it could also be an indicative, meaning the temple guard, you have a guard. In any case, guards are posted at the tomb, and an official wax seal also was placed there, and it was an offense that was a capital punishment to break into tombs and graves. Death cannot keep his prey, Jesus my Savior. And the next scene is, having just taken notice that the tomb is tightly sealed where Jesus lay, we then see, secondly, the empty tomb. And we come to these first seven verses, magnificent verses, here in Matthew 28. Look at them again. Now, after the Sabbath toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angels said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay." Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. And so these magnificent and wonderful verses, after the Sabbath, early on the first day of the week, the two Marys and others we learn also in Matthew and Luke, Mark and Luke, went to look at the tomb. This was Sunday morning. The expression three days and three nights needn't refer to three 24-hour periods. A day and a night in Judaism was a colloquial expression that could refer to any part of the day. And there was an earthquake when the angel was sent from heaven. It was witnessed by the guard, and they saw the angel, and they became like dead men. Literally, it could be translated, they were shaken. And the word there, shaken, is from the same root as the word earthquake in verse 2. In other words, these guards were quaking in their boots. The stone was rolled back. The seal was broken to let the first witnesses in, the women who came to the tomb. And the soldiers would lie about what took place. The angel, however, calms their fears, the women who had come to the tomb, and tells them what had taken place. And in verses 5 and 6, the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. And here's the heart of it all. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. God speaks through this angel comforts to their hearts, assurances to their believing hearts. He is not here. He has risen, as he said. 
John tells us, by the way, that another angel, indeed two angels, were there because there was one at the head and the foot of where Jesus had lain, perhaps reminding us of the two cherubim that overlooked the mercy seat. But he says in verse 6 in this passage, come, see. There is an appeal here to the senses. Just as with Thomas in John 20, when Jesus said to him, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and the place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe, Thomas. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God, an appeal to the senses. See the place where he lay. See he is not here. He has risen. And John tells us that when Peter and John arrived at the empty tomb, the linen clothes were lying there and the face cloths folded by themselves to the side. People of God, he rose. That's what the text is saying to us. He rose from the dead. That is history. But listen, the lost sinner outside of Christ is not looking at this neutrally. We are by nature estranged from God, enraged in rebellion, and only the Holy Spirit can change our implacable hearts to see the truth. That's called the new birth. That's called regeneration. That is conversion to Jesus Christ. Someone here today is perhaps in that position. You simply will not believe that Jesus rose from the dead, no matter what evidence is given. Because the evidence itself cannot change your heart or convert your soul. It's essential, it's important, because it is history. But you need the work of the risen Christ in your heart that you may be spiritually raised from the dead to believe in Jesus, trust in Jesus, who has been raised bodily from the tomb. Note this also in verse 6, that he was risen as he said. Well, Jesus had spoken of his resurrection. He spoke of Jonah, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man must be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Or he said on another occasion, destroy this temple, and after three days I will rise it up. And he spoke of the temple of his body. But notice just three passages here in Matthew. Keep your mark here and go back to chapter 16 of Matthew. Notice that in these three instances, the Lord was crystal clear about his resurrection to his disciples, though they did not yet perceive it. In chapter 16, verse 21, chapter 16, verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Or just turn the page, if you will, to chapter, chapter 17, verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Or turning over to chapter 20 of Matthew. Notice in verses 18 and 19. 
See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Just as he said, his word is sure, his word of grace cannot fail. And that same Christ has given us the word of his promise that since he rose, the Christian dead will also rise. No tomb is strong enough to hold the bodies of believers when the trumpet blows and we are raised and will be transformed. The trumpet will sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. So he rose, just as he said he would. His work was finished. His work was complete. Had his work not been complete, he would have remained in the tomb sealed behind the stone. No believer has any reason to fear. He promises that all who believe in him will be saved. The debt has been paid, and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead demonstrates that the debt, complete debt for sin, has been paid once for all. But then moving in the text, we see thirdly, the women encounter the risen Christ. We see this, of course, in the verses we've read in verse 7 and following. Jesus will go ahead of the disciples and will meet them there, and he wants them to go and tell them, and excitedly they will do so. Imagine the joy as the women take the news of Jesus' resurrection to the disciples question. A question I have been asking myself. Why do we not retain such thrill over the resurrection that we cannot help proclaim it? I'll ask the question again. Why do we not retain such thrill over the resurrection that we cannot help proclaim it? I'm not answering the question for you. I'm asking the question of you and of myself. In verse 8, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And suddenly Jesus met them and he greeted them and the women clasped his feet and worshiped him. Now the women, that the, just the fact that the women are recorded here as being at the cross, being at the tomb, having seen the risen Lord, being witnesses of the risen Christ, The witness of women in the ancient world was considered worthless. This was a wrong attitude, but it was the attitude. But the New Testament is true, and it includes all of the important details and all of the important facts. And he calms their fears. And he speaks of going to tell my brothers in verse 10, which probably not only means the disciples themselves, but to the full range of believers. This may be the over 500 brethren to whom Jesus appeared, spoken of by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, that are to meet him in Galilee. Now, there were other appearances before the disciples returned to Galilee, but Matthew does not mention any of those. Why might that be? Well, I think that those who believe what I'm about to say are correct that he stresses, Matthew chooses by divine inspiration to stress 
the meeting in Galilee rather than the other appearances of the risen Christ because Galilee was a place despised and Jesus came to a a place and to a people despised and he came in utter humility to those people in places in which the despised of the world lived. And then another reason is because all the way back in chapter 4, verse 15, it speaks of Galilee of the Gentiles. And throughout Matthew's gospel, there is a growing emphasis on the truth that the gospel will be preached not only to Israel, but to the Gentiles. The theme that the gospel would be taken to the world And it is seen throughout the book, and now we're being prepared for the astounding commission to take the gospel to the nations, the great commission at the end of this chapter. And we'll get there in a few moments. But before we do, we also see, fourthly, denials of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. We see that in verses 11 through 15. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money. Actually, it's a large amount of money. That's the point to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. The guards reported to the chief priests, probably this is the temple police, and they were bribed, say that the body was stolen by his disciples. Now that viewpoint has come up time and time again, especially in university settings over the centuries and especially within the time since the so-called Enlightenment. I remember that when I was in high school, there was a very well-known book that produced uh, quite a stir among people as it gave other theories and explanations. This, of course, is one that is very popular even to this day. That Jesus, now here's what it says, that Jesus exhausted dejected, completely depressed disciples who are sequestering themselves, mourning over the crucifixion, who do not yet understand the point of the crucifixion or believe in the resurrection, that Jesus' exhausted, dejected disciples stole the body and then went out and preached powerfully to the Roman world and to the Jews, taking beatings and even submitting themselves to death for their thanks, all for a lie. Now this strange credulity and is contrary to the data, and the guards were asleep. They're to say we were asleep while many men strained to remove that heavy stone and carried away a body, some sleep. I wish I could sleep like that at night. But his enemies denying the truth in this way actually foster the truth. What a desperate attempt to do away with the resurrection and its implication. 
They are like children caught with their hands in the cookie jar with a bite out of one and crumbs on their shirt saying, we didn't get into the cookie jar. Obviously, they're covering up. So the whole account shows the full and complete apostasy of Israel from the Lord and their willingness to come up to concoct these sorts of theories to deny the reality, the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's the human heart, apart from the new birth, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. But then fifthly, Christ meets his disciples in chapter 28, verses 16 and 17. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, and he brings to them the great commission. So what a contrast. The guards fraudulently deny the resurrection. The eleven obey Jesus and go to Galilee. They saw him and they worshipped him, though there were some others who doubted, as the scriptures tells us will always be the case. Although my own read on this is a little different. I think when it speaks of those who doubted there in verse 17, you must take it with verse 18, of course. So they see Jesus, he's come to the mount to meet with them. They worship him, but there are some who doubt. But in verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them. So as he comes closer, the doubt would have been dispelled. In any case, the New Testament is clear that Jesus was seen by his disciples was seen by Peter, the Lord's brother, also over 500 at one time, and later was seen by Paul, the apostle who hated and destroyed the church and was completely transformed by having seen the risen Christ. All of these resurrection appearances are found in the New Testament. So let's pause for a moment. What difference does it make? Well, it makes all the difference for time and for eternity. You know, I was thinking about our brothers and sisters in Nashville. I was talking with my dear wife. That shooter... went right into eternity with a heart that hated God and man. Those believers so horribly treated by that individual went right into eternity and stepped into the presence of their risen Lord. That's the difference it makes. Because the great question of the ages has been, who can roll away the stone? Who can defeat death? The strength of sin is the law. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. And so, 
All through the ages, people have turned to one source or another in order to try to find life eternal, satisfaction for the heart in this life. Can philosophy remove the stone? Can Buddha remove the stone? Can Mohammed defeat death? Can the world religions conquer death? Can your morality defeat death? Can political structures defeat death? Are you living with fear in your heart as we contemplate death? Do you do all that you can to simply sweep it under the rug? Do you never have a moment when you are lying on your bed at night and your heart is beating and the thought crosses your mind, I may not wake up in the morning? Where would I be if I died tonight? And the angel's message and Jesus' message is to those who believe in him, do not be afraid. Death and Jesus cannot coexist. He has conquered death and hell. The living Lord, not an image, not a hallucination, not a mirage, not a ghost, the living bodily raised Lord Jesus met his disciples. And his voice comes to the spiritually dead and raises them. Is he raising someone right now? Is the Holy Spirit accompanying his word to raise someone to life that has been dead in trespasses and sins? And his voice will pierce the chaos of this world at the last day and the dead will rise. Why? How? Because Jesus Christ rose from the tomb. And therefore, we come to the end of this chapter, and he gives to his church, the last thing we see, a commission, about which I can only speak and touch on a few things. But you must admit, there is no greater news to take to this world than that the once crucified Savior has been raised by the power of God from the dead. There is no greater news. We will not be canceled. We must speak the truth. All right, what are his people to do with this message that Jesus rose from the dead? We find it in verses 18 to the end of the chapter. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you all way to the end of the age. Now I want you to notice the alls of the text. All authority, all nations, all things, all the days. What are we to do with it? With that universal power of the Savior that is behind the church's mission and work in the world? Well, first we recognize that all authority belongs to Christ, the risen King who is mediator, the one who died and rose again. 
And clearly, verse 18, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, is a reference to the book of Daniel, chapter 7, in which we read these words, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. He is God, but now as the God-man who is the mediator, the Savior, he holds the universe in his hands, and he is leading this world to its consummation and to its redemptive purpose. How important for the church to remember when we are opposed for preaching the gospel by human figures that our authority to do so, to proclaim the gospel, comes from Christ, the risen Lord. The second thing is this. All nations are his province. And so he says in verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Because of his authority, the church makes disciples everywhere. Make disciples is in the imperative. It is a command. The method is the appointed means of grace, baptizing in the name of the Trinity, teaching them The characteristics of the disciples is that they believe and are baptized. Those baptized believers are then to be taught, and the New Testament knows nothing of disciples who are not learners. And then thirdly, all things Jesus commanded are to be taught and passed on. Verse 20 tells us, what we learn we must act upon. What we learn as disciples from the hand ultimately of our risen Lord, to those things we must be obedient as believers in Jesus. And then fourthly, the commission. The commission is buttressed by a blessed promise, a comprehensive promise that the Lord will be with us, pasas tas hemeras, all the days, or it could even be translated, the whole of every day. He will be with us the whole of every day, even to the end of the age, and the age will end. We are moving quickly to the consummation, and we have the promise of Christ's presence with us as we take the good news of the risen Lord to a needy world. So, in view of the resurrection, we are to take the gospel to the nations, and are you not glad that it ends with a promise? that he is with us always. Sparrow Simpson wrote a book, Anglican Divine, on the resurrection of Jesus, one of several very good books on the resurrection. And he speaks of the essential antecedent to apostolic preaching. That is to say, the fact that the apostles went out into the world, that Paul was willing to be beheaded for the gospel, that others were willing to die, that Peter, as we know, was crucified upside down. They were willing to go into the world and preach the gospel, and this can be accounted for by objective reality and nothing else. The only way it can be accounted for is that Jesus rose from the dead and commissioned them to do it. Now, my unbelieving friend, who may be here today, we've been looking at the greatest event in the entirety of world history. It can't be written out. It's true. It's the hinge of the ages. 
The very first sermon preached after Jesus' resurrection was by Peter, Peter who had denied him. Peter, who had not believed in his resurrection, but now having seen him, talked with him, having eaten with him, preaches, God raised him up, loosed the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now that is the foundation of the Christian faith. Christianity is not morality. Now, there are Christian ethics, a Christian distinctive Christian biblical view of morality, but the essence of Christianity is in history. It's in facts. Christianity is not philosophy. Christianity is based in facts, the facts of Jesus Christ's crucifixion and resurrection from the dead. The foundation of the Christian faith is based on the affirmation that Jesus rose bodily from the tomb and that his teaching is nothing without it. Christ, I say it reverently, would be nothing without it because he would not be a truth speaker. He is a truth speaker. He is truth itself. He rose from the tomb. Years ago, my mother gave me a book. I was 13 years old when she gave me this book. It's inscribed by her. I won't read it to you. It's a little mushy. (laughs) And I'm waiting for her resurrection. What would you think of a mother who knew that her son wanted to be a preacher... And so she bought him W.A. Criswell's book, Why I Preach That the Bible is Literally True. Now, I've read other books through the years that are much heavier in theology. But I was 13 years old. My mom gave me this book. And there was a story in it that I was remembering just the other day because I still pull it off the shelves. And... It's, um, it's about the resurrection. Dr. W.R. White, one of the great Christian statesmen, told a story of a brilliant Chinese who came to the services being conducted by the missionary. The brilliant young man asked for a New Testament and was given one. Later, he came back to confess Christ, and his confession made this stirring testimony. Here's what this brilliant Chinese young man converted said. I took the New Testament home with me. I sat down on the floor and read it through before I did anything else. I've read the great writings of Confucius. I wanted to satisfy my hungry heart there. I knocked at the door, but no answer came for Confucius was dead. I read the message of Buddhism, seeking that for which my soul so profoundly longed. I knocked at the door of Buddha, but no answer came, for Buddha was dead. I read the Quran. My soul longed to find peace there. I knocked at the door, but no answer came, for Muhammad was dead. I read the writings of the greatest patriots and religious leaders of the past. 
I knocked, but no answer came. While reading this New Testament, I found that it claimed its author to be alive. I knocked at that door. I found the living Christ. He came into my soul. Here my hungry heart found peace, a peace for which it has longed. The New Testament says, Jesus rose again. And while in that tomb, at the appointed time, his heart was healed of the spear wound. And his heart began to beat. And the blood began to flow. And his soul was once again united with his body. And the Holy Spirit transformed his body. And the God-man lived. Literally, truly, materially lived. I believe that you cannot explain the New Testament narratives on the basis of naturalism. And the only explanation is that they are what they say they are, these books of the Bible, the Word of God. And there's more. Like with that young Chinaman, the New Testament narratives speak to the deepest need of your heart on which eternity is written. And because we are by nature, you and I, rebels against God, you and I need the good news of a Savior raised from the dead to remove our guilt and to remove our deep-seated fear of death because we have rebelled against God. So we say with E.J. Bicknell, the resurrection was God's public attestation of the claims of the crucified, the amen of the Father to the it is finished of the Son. It is finished. He did this work on Calvary's cross. He shed his blood to redeem sinners. He was a substitute in the place of sinners. His blood is sufficient for the vilest sinner, for the vilest of sins. He is risen from the dead. His work on the cross is confirmed. He has poured out His Spirit to be at work until He returns. And through that Holy Spirit, He brings to life those spiritually dead. The resurrection means that the sacrifice has been accepted. The debt that you and I owe has been paid that his claims are sealed, and that his people shall be raised incorruptible when he comes again and the trumpet sounds. People of God, that's the good news of Easter. Christ the Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. This is the news we proclaim, and it's the best news the greatest news, the most incomparable news. Oh, focus your mind and heart there. Focus your lives there. As a church, focus our mission there. As the people of God, continue to trust this risen Lord all the way to your heavenly home. And if you do not know Christ, we are holding up before your eyes one who was placarded for sinners, who lives and can save you from your sins for time and for eternity. Trust in Him. He's the risen Lord. 
Amen and amen.